TalkLine Network Radio, America's longest-running Jewish broadcast network, the voice of the Jewish community. Welcome to the podcast. You are now tuned in to this week's episode of our podcast. Today we are going to interview some of the greatest and most influential minds in our field. And now, please welcome your host. You're listening to Talk Line with Zev Brenner, America's premier Jewish broadcast on the air since 1981. And now, here's your host. Welcome back to the program. Um, Zev Brenner, one of my favorite guests is Nat Lewin. He is such an accomplished attorney. He practices law district attorney, the Supreme Court. He's recognized by the D.C. Legal Times as one of the Washington's greatest lawyers of the past 30 years. He's ranked number two of Washington Best Lawyers by the Washingtonian. He's been voted one of America's best lawyers for 30 years and was included in the 2009 edition of that volume in four distinct practice categories, including appellate litigation, defense of white-collar crime, First Amendment litigation. He's fought many good battles for the Jewish community, including Chabad, the menorahs, wearing yarmulkes. And now we're going to be looking at a case where he's involved with dealing with a synagogue that's facing a weekly barrage of Shabbat morning anti-Semites shouting at them. Nat, welcome back to the program. Thank you for joining us. Thank, thank you, Zev. It's a pleasure to be back here uh, and to, to talk to you about a very important case that I hope will get substantial coverage in the media. It deserves it, and uh, we can talk about that. There are, unfortunately, too much litigation and too many court decisions these days that affect the Jewish community. And this one is one that, when it was initially issued, by the Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit in 2021, I called a uh, clear and present danger to the Jewish community in the United States. And now it has just been amplified by a decision that is really outrageous. Now, you were on a year ago, almost exactly a year ago, talking about this case, and there's been a new development recently where let's why don't you explain what happened to the synagogue in Ann Arbor, Michigan, that faced a weekly barrage of anti-Semites screaming and putting up signs to people going into the synagogue? Well, in, in Ann Arbor, Michigan, a synagogue happens to be a conservative synagogue, although it's attended by various Shomer Shabbos as well. The um, a group, an anti-Semitic group, clearly uh, not just anti-Israel, but uh, anti-Semitic in the sense that it, uh, they brought signs that talked about the fact they want no more Holocaust movies and attacks on Jews as such, even though there were even among the protesters, the people who did it, or even some people who were born Jewish, but nonetheless joined this anti-Semitic group that decided to meet once a week, Saturday mornings between 9 and 11, and surround the synagogue with signs that attacked Israel, said Zionism is racism and various terrible things about Israel, but also clearly anti-Semitic. And there were people who would ordinarily have gone to services on Shabbat mornings who were intimidated by these protesters who didn't close the doors. They didn't physically keep people from going in, but they surrounded it one day a week. And just at the hours that they were davening in the shul. And after a number of years, many years, as a matter of fact, of suffering this, two members of the shul went to court and said to a federal court in a very long, detailed uh, complaint, please move these people 
a thousand feet away from the synagogue. They didn't, they said, we of course would prefer it if they were prohibited altogether from doing this. But if you can at least move them a thousand feet from the synagogue and make sure they're not on the grass that belongs to the synagogue. So they were actually standing on the grass belonging to the synagogue. Yes. They so that's the synagogue. Isn't that synagogue correct. property? And uh, the 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 effort the the uh, uh, people who brought the lawsuit, one of whom is a woman who unfortunately just passed away a number of months ago, a Holocaust survivor, Doctor Miriam Brick. And um, what happened is they brought the lawsuit. And they came before a judge who the volunteer lawyer who chose to represent them in Ann Arbor, Michigan, thought that this judge was really hostile, not only to to the plaintiffs, but also to Jews generally. And he made some statements which suggested that, which got the judge angry. And it also got the Court of Appeals angry. And the judge, the trial judge, dismissed the case saying, oh, there's no injury. They're just their feelings are hurt and uh, there's no standing. Now, that's a, a important concept in American law, which has now become, by the way, very uh, relevant because Israeli court, the Israeli Supreme Court does not require standing. That's a a condition that is required in American courts. You have to be harmed. And she dismissed this lawsuit on the ground that there was no standing. And the parties appealed it to the Court of Appeals in Cincinnati, the Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit. And the Court of Appeals, the chief judge being Judge Sutton, who was legally a very fine lawyer. Of course, in his history as uh, as a younger man, he uh, challenged the constitutionality of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. That's Judge Sutton, who, who was adjudicating this case or who was looking at this case for the Court of Appeals. Yes, this is the chief judge of the Sixth Circuit. His name is Sutton. And he wrote an opinion which said, no, they do have standing, but we're going to go on on our own now. The district judge didn't reach this question. We're going to go on our own now and say the case should be dismissed because this was just free speech. It was part of the Israeli-Palestinian dispute. That's all it was. And therefore, they had the right to engage in that, quote, free speech, even though it was only when people were coming to shul. It wasn't free speech that they were trying to tell anybody other than the people who were coming to the synagogue on that day. And they were, quote, speaking to them in what clearly, I think, is intimidation to try to keep them from going to the synagogue. Ultimately, by the way, I might just note that the Ann Arbor City Council, after this litigation hit the media, passed a resolution which condemned this as anti-Semitic. But nonetheless, the group persisted. The district judge had dismissed the case and the Court of Appeals in a decision back in 2021, said, oh, this is part of the Israeli-Palestinian dispute, and therefore it's free speech, and the case should be dismissed. But, Nat, is there a distinction that the judge is making if it's Palestinian-Israeli conflict as opposed to if they said Jews are terrible people? Is he making that distinction? Does it really make any difference? Well, it it is closer to speech 
if it's simply Israeli Palestinian. If, if, if somebody says Jews are bad people, doesn't say a, it doesn't say hurt you. Just says Jews are terrible people. They're stealing. They're doing this. They're doing that. Is that would that be in the same category? It would also be speech. The Correct. question is, I thought at the time that what made this particularly legally indefensible, in other words, people have a right to say as free speech, Jews are terrible people, they're criminals, they can't be trusted. Yes, they have they have a constitutional right in the United States to say that. That's anti-Semitism, but anti-Semitism, anti-Semitic speech, just as speech is permitted in the United States. But if you gather around a place of worship to keep people from praying, if this had been, been around a Catholic church and what they did is they maligned the Pope and the Catholics to keep people from going to church or around a mosque and they attacked Islam in order that people should not go and worship on Friday or any other day in the mosque. I think that is a denial of a constitutionally protected right. As a matter of fact, the federal law that was passed that protected abortion clinics against uh, those who are against abortion and try to prevent people from going into the abortion clinics very specifically said that the right to worship is protected. That's federal law. Right to worship is protected. Now that the Supreme Court, by the way, has overruled Roe versus Wade, it's clear that a place of worship is certainly more constitutionally protected than an abortion clinic. So before I get to how this is allowed to happen, but you stated earlier this they were standing on the grass which belongs to the synagogue. Now, does one have a federally protected right of free speech standing on somebody else's property saying terrible things about you or terrible well, things about your religion? I, I, you know, I frankly right now, whether it was this was not a property right that was claimed here. I don't know. Uh, uh, be for another, can I go into your backyard and say terrible things about you? I'm, I'm, I'm uh, trespassing. Isn't somebody trespassing if they're standing on the grass of the synagogue? Well, the question is whether the synagogue asserts its uh, property rights. In this, case, in this case, the people who brought the suit, the synagogue did not initially support the lawsuit because it had some, frankly, very progressive Jewish constitutional lawyers who also said, oh, this is speech and it's constitutionally protected speech. Now, uh, the, uh, the, uh, uh, the, uh, uh, synagogue did not bring the lawsuit. Um, it, it was two people. It was the woman you mentioned, Miriam, who passed away, and Marvin Gerber, the, whose, whose son is very active in the Jewish community, Sander Gerber. Uh, he brought the lawsuit. But um, so is that why they're saying that he had no standing because it wasn't the synagogue, it was private individuals? That was part of the question. Right, it was individuals, not the synagogue. This was not the synagogue that was protecting its property. Um, it was would it, made, would, it made, would it made any difference if the now, synagogue itself uh, sued? When a let me let me be clear. Um, it's not clear, although the synagogue didn't bring the lawsuit, they tried to get them to move away from the grass section adjacent to the sidewalk in front of the synagogue. We're not talking about on the property of the synagogue. Whether the synagogue could have brought a lawsuit 
had they been on the synagogue property? That's possible. And now I'm looking at the at the text of what the complaint was and where they were. I don't think they were on the synagogue property to the extent that you may have inferred from what I said before, or if I suggested that they were actually on the synagogue's property. That's not what happened. They were not on the synagogue's property. They were around the synagogue. Now, let me ask you before we break in that. I know if you have a protest, don't you need a permit from the city for it? Because if they're doing a protest, and again, I don't know how many people were involved that meet every week in front of the synagogue, but don't they require some sort of permit or legal status in order to have a gathering? Well, part of the complaint was that the city allowed this without requiring a permit. The city felt that this was not the kind, initially at least, this is not the kind of demonstration that required a permit. And frankly, the theory, the legal theory of the plaintiffs was that the city, they named the city as a defendant in the case, that the city had joined the conspiracy to prevent uh, people or to intimidate people who are trying to go in to pray. So uh, uh, the city was a party to this conspiracy. The This latest decision, I haven't even gotten to t- talking about what has amplified the outrage, really, which is that the uh, decision of the Court of Appeals allowed the case to go ahead or, or required that the case be dismissed, but sent it back to the district court. Back in the district court, the anti-Semites and those who were protesting said, oh, we're entitled now to attorney's fees. Federal rules allow attorney's fees against plaintiffs in rare circumstances when the case is really frivolous. But the district judge who harbored, no doubt, uh, bad feelings regarding the lawyer who represented them and the plaintiffs, awarded $158,000 in attorney's fees against the plaintiffs. Frankly, I thought that that, although I had been involved in the earlier stages of the case, I thought there was no chance that the Court of Appeals even with Judge Sutton having issued the decision he issued the first time, that the Court of Appeals would agree that the defendants uh, uh, had a right to have their attorney's fees paid. I was shocked to discover and to learn just about a month ago that, or uh, less than a month ago, that the Court of Appeals, with Judge Sutton writing the opinion, said, yeah, the district judge had a right to award $158,000 in attorney's fees to uh, the defendants in that case. Because they said it's a frivolous lawsuit. Who were who had surrounded the synagogue with signs. So I've drafted a friend of the court brief to support a petition for rehearing by the full Sixth Circuit. And I hope that judges on the Sixth Circuit, will, other judges, will see that this is absolutely outrageous. As I say in my brief, plaintiffs should not be punished for filing a good faith civil rights complaint to secure their constitutional and statutory right to freedom of worship. That's what they've done. They've been punished because they've gone to court to get their right to pray. Outrageous. Outrageous. Our our guess is... is, ...would allow that for any other religious denomination. If these were Catholics, if these were Muslims, I don't think that the court would say, well, that's all right. 
So you're saying anti-Semitism then that if they if they single out the Jews as opposed to any other group? Well, I think that the Jews' right to worship has not been uh, respected in this case. I think that's right. And I think there would be much more of a public outcry if what happened is this happened to a mosque. Our guest is famed attorney Nat Lewin. He argues with the Supreme Court. He fights for rights for Jews, and he's one of the top lawyers in the United States. And we're looking at a case of Ann Arbor, Michigan, where a court of appeals ruled that and sustained the ruling that uh, anti-Semites have a right to demonstrate outside the synagogue, and they awarded legal fees that the synagogue or the defendants in this case uh, actually, the plaintiffs in this case have to pay the anti-Semites a hundred and fifty-eight thousand dollars. Asked on since nineteen eighty-one. And now here's your host. Welcome back to the program. I'm Zeb Our guest is Nat Lewin. He is one of the top attorneys in the United States. And we're looking at a strange case. Well, actually, it's a troubling case of an Ann Arbor synagogue. Two of its members sued to stop anti-Semites from protesting outside the synagogue. And not only do they lose, but they have to pay legal fees to the anti-Semites of $158,000. By the way, Nat, did, did the synagogue itself ever enter beyond those two individuals? One of them is Marvin Gerber. The other one is somebody who's deceased. Did the synagogue itself ever get involved or strictly the whole time only these two individuals? The synagogue itself never joined the litigation. On the other hand, at some later stage after the lawsuit had gotten national publicity and the decision had been rendered against Gerber and Brisk, against the two plaintiffs, the rabbi of the synagogue then finally said, well, they they were right. Uh, This shouldn't be permitted. Unfortunately, until that point, the synagogue had permitted, had tolerated these protests or these terrible signs and the gatherings around the synagogue for many years. How many years are we talking about? Have these anti-Semites been there? I think 13 years. 13. They didn't get tired every year. 13. These must be real crazies if they do it every single week uh, for 13 years. There were people who were motivated by uh, an individual who gathered together the group who, you know, one could only uh, guess at their motives. There was never a lawsuit. There was never any action in any court that would permit discovery or depositions or questions regarding the people who were holding the signs and who agreed to congregate around the synagogue. How many people are we talking about that were congregating outside the synagogue? I think there were nine to 12 people who would do that. Wow. wow. Let's go to Raisy and Borough Park. Thank you for your question for Nat Lewin. Go ahead, Raisy. Yes, I was wondering what happens if they refuse to pay. They don't have the money or they don't want to pay. Let them not pay. Let's see what's going to happen. That's number one. Number two is um, how about counter-protesters? They have 12 at the most. Let's try to find 50 people, 100 people, insulting them and harassing them kind of as a counter-protest. And will they stop then? If they are 15, they're allowed to do it. Let's get the whole Ann Arbor or surrounding areas of ship from New York and can you repeat that question? I think I think there's two part questions. Hold, hold, hold on, I'll, 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 I'll tell now what you said. Well, just to make it succinct. Number one is uh, why. Number two is why don't you have counter protesters outside? And what happens if they don't pay the fine? Well, an answer to number one, as I've said, the the problem was that the synagogue itself and some constitutional, Jewish constitutional lawyers who were there said, okay, well, well, we can accept that. And the city accepted it too. Uh, item two, as what happens if they don't pay? 
Well, then the next step that's taken is court enforcement of a judgment, which can mean uh, seizing property. I mean, Marvin Gerber is a resident in that uh, in Ann Arbor. Uh, if he doesn't pay that amount, it's like any other court judgment. The court can go and send out uh, people to enforce and collect the judgment against his bank account, against other property. Anyway, thank you for your question. Let's move on. Let's go to Yankel and Williamsburg. Yankel and Williamsburg, you have a question for our guests. Go ahead, Yankel. Yes, Shavuotov. Shavuotov. I think that one of the factors that may have made the legal system lenient on the on the protesters is that they do go under the name of Jewish Witnesses for Peace. They have the name Jewish in their organization. That it's good that it's proper, but the legal system said, "Oh, this is just two Jewish groups," and we have to emphasize that it was a Jewish-named organization. I didn't hear that yet. Well, the 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 fact that a group can call itself Jewish, Jewish Voice for Peace, uh, or any any use any name that has the word Jewish in it, doesn't give them any greater rights to violate other people's constitutional rights. Uh, That's misleading. And the court, no court, relied on the fact that this group called itself by any name that included the name Jewish in any way. And the signs were clearly very anti-Semitic signs. No more Holocaust movies. you know, uh, signs that were directed at Jews, not nearly at, not only at Israel, although Judge Sutton said this is part of the Israeli-Palestinian dispute. Does that answer your question? All right, thank you, Yankel, for your question. Let's uh, move on. Let's, I believe we have... uh, Stan from Forest Hills on the line, so let's go to Stan from Forest Hills with your questions, and uh, um, and we're looking at a very, very strange case. I guess Stan's not there. We have a very, very strange case. What legal recourse do they have? Because now you have two courts that have ruled, and you have the appellate court, and you have the lower court that said that that they have a right to protest, and they're, they impose fines uh, or legal fees on the plaintiffs, so what legal recourse is there? Well, the first legal recourse is, as I said, a petition for rehearing or rehearing by the entire uh, group of active judges of the Sixth Circuit. Uh, The fact is the decision, the original decision was Judge Sutton and Judge Clay and a third judge. This latest decision was Judge Sutton and Judge Clay and a third judge. So now, I mean, the brief I wrote, which was signed by a whole host of Jewish organizations, uh, the Aguda, the Orthodox Union, uh, the um, uh, various uh, Jewish groups that have agreed to uh, Kolpa, of course, uh, the Agudas Harabonim, the Coalition for Jewish Values, have all supported the, Ars- the Rabbinical Council of America, uh, the Orthodox Union, Torah and Mesorah. They all support the notion that the full panel of active judges of the Sixth Circuit should reconsider this case and should not permit the punishment of plaintiffs who bring this kind of lawsuit. And what's nice you have, these are groups that ordinarily wouldn't be involved with anything dealing with the conservative reform movement that they're involved because this is something which is, it could be happened to any Jew, any synagogue. And if this get, if they get away with it there, they can do it anywhere. They can do Borough Park, they can go Flatbush, you name it, they can go and demonstrate and they'd be protected if this ruling was allowed to stand. Well, and I would hope that other non-Jewish organizations that protect 
religious rights would support our position as well. Uh, and I, I frankly, I've notified these other organizations of this decision because very few people even know that the Court of Appeals decided this attorney's fees question. So mm-hmm. I've notified some of these other organizations hoping that they too may join and agree that the right to worship, the right to exercise religion can't be intimidated the way this group of uh, protesters or demonstrators were doing and have been doing for years. Okay, let's take Stan from Forest Hill. Stan, you're on the air. Your question. Yeah, okay. Counselor, uh, you have stated, one, that there was no obstruction by these. Um, first of all, I'm against what they did. Of course, they're, they're terrible. But there was no obstruction by these people to allow them to go into the synagogue. They were yelling and screaming and harassing them, not on the premises, as you have stated. They weren't on the pre- They were nearby or I don't know how far they were away. But they weren't on the premises. They didn't harass them. They didn't attack them, but they screamed and yelled from a distance. Okay. The question that bothers me is you also said that they didn't even, they didn't uh, make uh, make the lawsuit themselves. Is that correct? Hello? The synagogue didn't make the lawsuit. The synagogue didn't make the lawsuit. So one plus one equals two as far as I can see. The, the the judges were right in dropping this suit. I mean, I, I I don't understand why. I think Zeb said, why didn't the synagogue be part of the suit? What was the problem? But I don't From think I don't think I, let me ask now. But I don't think it would have made any difference had the synagogue been part of the suit. These people represented worshippers, so they have standing, and so uh, and I yeah, think but it would look better, wouldn't it have looked saying that the synagogue themselves? Hey, this is our synagogue. Blah blah blah. blah. I mean, the rabbis. That doesn't look good. If it's in a court of law, but overall, the judges basically said, "Hey, you know, they must have thought that in the room privately." I mean, the, the synagogue isn't bringing the suit, and so forth. And they have these guys; people have rights. They can do a, a protest on the other side. So, according to the judges, it was a frivolous lawsuit. I can't. I have to agree with the judges if they were attacked or if they harassed by these people, one thousand percent. But they weren't. You said it yourself, counselor. They weren't. They weren't physically attacked. Yeah, he's. he's, he's go ahead. He's, go I ahead. don't hear him. I don't. So hear him. listen to your radio. Go ahead. Thank okay, you okay. I'm going to hang up. Right. Okay, thank you. Yeah, go ahead, Nat. They weren't physically attacked, but by organizing and standing around the synagogue exactly at the time when the prayers were going on, when the davening was going on and people were coming to the synagogue, the purpose of that demonstration was to prevent people from praying, from worshiping. There's a right to do that. There's a constitutional right to pray and worship and not be intimidated out of that, even if you stand at a substantial distance away from the place of worship. And therefore, it's not simply a question of property rights. It's a question of intimidation of people who are going to exercise a constitutional right. That's why legally, it's, I think, a sound position to ask a court to push these people away. That's all it said. The complaint said, put them a thousand feet away from the synagogue. Make sure that they don't stand so close to the synagogue that they intimidate people. You can intimidate people who are going to do things. If you intimidate them, when they're going to a store or when they're going to a, some other place which is not constitutionally protected, 
they have a right to do that. They can intimidate you from going to uh, to giant, from going to a uh, Safeway, if they want to intimidate you and put up signs saying that that place should not be someplace you go. But they can't constitutionally intimidate you out of going to Davin. If they could, then I think Jewish prayer in the United States is severely, severely impacted and hindered. Because imagine if you are a Jew who's going to pray and every time you will go to your synagogue, there are people who come around there just as you're going, just at that time, to intimidate you from praying. I think that's un, that's illegal under American law. Let's go to Jeff in the Upper West Side of Manhattan. Your question for Nat Lewin. Go ahead, Jeff. Yeah, hi. You you, you, got, you guys can hear me? You just lower your radio slightly because you'll need to hear. Uh, okay, yeah. Okay, from afar, I see three points. Um, one, there are two fundamental um, First Amendment privileges that come in, seem to come into uh, class here. One, the right free exercise of religion, and two, the right of free speech. But they really don't. Because let's say you go into a church, a Christian church. You go on Sunday and you have a sermon. That experience is supposed to stay with you and guide your actions for at least the rest of the week till you go back to church. And, and similarly, you could say on Shabbos when you go to synagogue. Well, if you have these protesters purposely going to where you are coming out of the synagogue, they're impinging on, on your um, church synagogue experience. And, and um, Nat, I think, made a point right before I got on that was similar, talking about if this was let stand, people might not go to synagogue anymore. The other thing about First Amendment is this time, place, and matter things. And, and certainly you can't like yell fire in a crowded theater. So they could say whatever they want and do whatever they want. But if they purposely do it right where uh, um, people are coming out of a synagogue, they're not, their um, First Amendment rights is not lessened by telling them you got to move it a little bit. But they are infringing on the freedom of speech rights of the people coming out of the synagogue. That's number one. Number two, um, if they're saying that this is because they're against Zion, you know, Zionism or against Israel or whatever, or, or in favor of Palestine, of course, I disagree with that, you know, philosophy, but they have, I think, the burden of proof to prove that they're targeting Zionists rather than Jews. And they're um, singling out Jews and imputing views to them that they may or may not have. I think Nat also said that there's a very liberal, liberal synagogue, and I think they have the burden of proof to do it. And I also think that um, if this goes to to Supreme Court, I think that we'll win, but I don't know if we'll get it to Supreme Court. And finally, one last thing I think related to this, Michigan is the state where had these idiots on the right wing that tried to kidnap the governor. So how do you know you're not going to have these crazy idiot zealots over there too? And whether they do or not, the idea that they might is going to be in the head of some of the synagogue goers and thus again, like Nat was talking about in a related point, infringe on their desire and right to go to synagogue. Nat. Well, I, I agree with much of what you say and the arguments you present. Uh, again, it is uh, 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 not so. I think the, the speech rights can be controlled by time, place, and manner restrictions which is what this long complaint that was filed on behalf of the two plaintiffs actually tried to do. It tried to say, okay, they have free speech rights, but that can be controlled or limited by time, place, and manner. That's why the case was a rational, I think a correct case. I think that the court should, a fair court should, under those circumstances, say you can't gather when people are coming to pray in order to intimidate them. That's the simple proposition. 
And I think that the United Jewish community should get behind this case and see to it, try to see to it, that it gets to the Supreme Court. Because I think the Supreme Court would see that this is an infringement of a First Amendment right, which this court recognizes. And that brings me to another subject, which is that in uh, two months, or I'm sorry, in a month and a half, the court will be hearing argument in a very important First Amendment free uh, exercise of religion case, which affects Sabbath observers, Shomri Shabbos, and the uh, religious uh, liberty community, and all Jewish organizations, including even the ADL, agree that a law that was enacted in 1972, that quite frankly, I personally drafted, and Dennis Rapps and David Butler and Rabbi Scherer is a colonel of Raqqa and Marvin Schick and various other people supported and saw that it would get enacted, which protects Sabbath observers against employment discrimination, that that case is coming up before the Supreme Court and will be heard on April 18th of this year. Jeff, uh, thank you. You spoke like a true lawyer. Any final thoughts before I let you go? Yeah, yeah. again, this very much relates to what Nat said and, and I said about time, place, and um, you know, arguments. They could make the same protest anywhere, even in front of the synagogue, to re- reach that audience. Like on, on another day and another time, let's say when there's you know normal business going on, nine to five weekdays or at a board meeting, whatever. But to do it um, on on you know, Shabbos, when people are going to synagogue, doesn't add to their rights, but it diminishes the rights and erodes the rights of the, the freedom of religion of, of the people going to synagogue. And I hope, you know, you win. This does go to U.S. Supreme Court, because I do think you'll win. Hey, thank you, Jeff. Nat, you wanted to respond to what he just said. I agree with what he says, that that is a very key difference. If people want to uh, even in close to a synagogue, if people want to post signs that are A, anti-Semitic, or B, anti-Jewish religion, or in some way to try to to uh, uh, hinder them or persuade them that they shouldn't go to the synagogue, they can post those signs at different times during the week. But if they gather only, only when people are coming, they're not trying to speak to those people who are coming to the synagogue to tell them that Jews are can't be trusted and that, that uh, Zionism is racism. They're not trying to persuade them. They know that those are people who they're not going to persuade with their signs. They're not trying to speak to them in the sense of freedom of speech. They're trying to intimidate them. And that's the difference. Our guest is Nat Lewin. He is a famed attorney. He fights for for Jewish causes for so many years, one of the top lawyers. And we're looking at the case of an Ann Arbor synagogue that's facing for 13 years protests by anti-Semites shouting each week trying to disturb services, and they were awarded $158,000 in legal fees by the courts. You're listening to Talk Line with Zev Brenner, America's premier Jewish broadcast on the air since 1981. And now, here's your host. Now we're back. Nat Lewin is our guest, and we're looking at, he's a famous attorney, and uh, we're Take, going to take some of your phone calls in just a moment. Uh, we're looking at the case of an Ann Arbor synagogue where 13 years people have been protesting, anti-Semites have been protesting, and the courts awarded uh, $158,000 in legal fees to be paid. Nat, 
before I take our next phone call, why has there been no public outcry? I didn't see anything in Jewish media a lot. I mean, I saw a little, some stories. You would think this will galvanize the Jewish community. This is anti-Semitism at its worst. We're living in an age where anti-Semitism is so is growing. This is just a manifestation of that. Where is everybody? Sam, your mystery is a mystery to me as well. I think, uh, frankly, when I first heard about uh, this latest decision, I contacted the JTA, the reporter who had written initially for the Jewish Telegraphic Agency about the award by the district court of this amount of uh, attorney's fees. And he responded to me, well, this is just another uh, addition to uh, what happened before. It's not really newsworthy. I was shocked by that reaction. I think it is very newsworthy because what it says is you can't even have access to the courts to go and try to correct this. Whether the courts will ultimately agree with you, the particular three judges of the Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit did not agree with these plaintiffs. That doesn't mean that some other court might very well agree with them. And frankly, with my legal theory and the legal theory that your caller spelled out, which is that you shouldn't be able to do this around a place of worship. Uh, I think it is an invitation to violence also around a place of worship. When a group of people can come close enough to a synagogue and with signs that say, and here I'll read to you, Jewish power corrupts, resist Jewish power, Israel, no right to exist, atone for the sin of supporting genocide, no more wars for Israel, Zionism is racism, end Jewish supremacism, supremacism in Palestine, no more Holocaust movies, boycott apartheid Israel, stop U.S. aid to Israel, end the Palestinian Holocaust, no more wars for Israel. Those kind of signs are invitations, really, for some, particularly in these days when there are absolutely wild, crazy people shooting and doing terrible things of violence. This is an invitation to violence. Somebody around you can do that. Gillian Flapper, thank you for patient with your question for Nat Lewin. Thank you, Rabbi Brenner, and thank you, uh, Councilor Lewin, for um, taking my question. Uh, why is this shocking to everybody when we're living in a country that condones uh, National Day of Hate? We have Jews being attacked all over, including New York. Um, my question is, this has been going on for 13 years. Where has the ADL been? That's number one. And number two, um, what, besides standing up for this and protesting, the Jews protesting, we are fighting a battle. And unfortunately, it seems that these are the same conditions, Hatzbeshalom, that existed in Nazi Germany. And um, we as Jews have to stand up. They're doing this because they feel they can get away with it, with the Jews. As was said before on the show, if this were done to, to Muslims, and we look at Michigan, be a Jew and set foot into Dearborn, Michigan. Be a Jew and set foot into Ann Arbor, Michigan. These people were the ones that put Omar and Taib and all these beauties into office. They voted for the people who are staunch, rabid anti-Semites. So this is not shocking. This is something that, not that we expected, 
but this is something that uh, has occurred, and they put up with this for 13 years. So, give you a question. question. Go ahead. What's your question for Nathalie? My Moore? question is, where is the where is the ADL and the other organizations fighting tooth and nail against this? I see them with photo ops. I I used to believe in the ADL, but now I say the only thing that's going to help us is Hashem. Because right now it's all over the country. And, you know, we see the um, take the case in California where they wanted to take away Brit Mila and they wanted to take kosher slaughter away. And look what's happening. So I'm going to let Nat respond to what... We have other people calling. I'll let Nat respond to Good okay. question, Gila. So... Go ahead, Nat. I mean, I agree that there is a lot of anti-Semitic feeling that would support the result of this case. Uh, and uh, it is, as your caller says, the situation in the United States today makes many people think of what Jews were like in Germany in the 1930s. But I, as a lawyer, you know, the, the fact is, the synagogue didn't take any action against it because I was told members of the synagogue, Jewish lawyers, said this is free speech. Hello? And you can't go after it because of free speech. Frequently, our own people, because of various uh, uh, legal uh, analyses, and one of your callers, Today, tonight also express that because they take legal analyses and they say, okay, we have to permit this. I think we do not. And I think, again, my contribution to this has been that I think I put it in the context of legal understanding, the right under the First Amendment to the free exercise of religion. I would not have expected the ADL in its present guise to be supporting these plaintiffs. But I do expect the groups, the Religious Liberty Institute, the Beckett Fund, uh, various organizations that support the free exercise of religion to come to the assistance of the members of this synagogue who are intimidated and can't pray in the United States. Okay, thank you for your phone call. Let's um, give a good call. Call again. Let's go to Ariane Flavish. Ariane Flavish, are you there? Yes, here I am. Listen, when you spoke about this case, uh, I don't know, six months ago, I was very outraged. And now I'm not outraged because I realize I changed my point of view completely. Um, and, I, and I don't like what's being done by making this a federal case because you sued the wrong party. The synagogue sued the wrong party, basically. They should have sued the government of the locality in Michigan where it happened because it's the government's part. It's the government's obligation to protect the right of free exercise of religion. Now, if you're going to sue the other side, it's winner take all because they have a right to free speech. So they cast their lot in a, in a forum where it had to be decided whether the right of free speech was uh, not being exercised. And that was a risky venture. If they had just if they had just sued the government and, and, and request first requested from the government that they ask that they you know ask them to take the appropriate measures to step back and to, you know, modify their. Um, modify their protests, then they would have had a good suit against the government if they were refused, and they would have gotten legal fees. But here, here they're just, uh, the government's not going to award one side legal fees over the other, because there are competing constitutional rights. So why don't, you, why don't they just back off, have a gavir, pay the attorney's fees, and, and start suing the right party, which is the government? No, they shouldn't. Why should they pay the, the attorney's fees? That's an outrage. But let Nat respond. Well, first of all, let me say I have the complaint in my hand and the city of Ann Arbor and its instrumentalities are sued as co-conspirators 
in this conspiracy. Whether the city alone could be sued, frankly, I have much great doubt whether you could say to a city, you have to, you have to prevent people from doing this. If a city determines ordinarily what is considered a breach of peace with regard to the city regulations or what is considered a protest, which a city has to license, those are the kinds of decisions that government ordinarily makes on its own. So if they had simply sued the city of Ann Arbor alone and not sued the people who put up these signs, uh, and after all, they were only asking that the people who put up the signs be removed and be put further away from the synagogue, I think they would have had much less chance of succeeding than by suing the people who are actually putting up these very hateful signs and trying to intimidate them from coming to pray. Wait, did Mr. Did Mr. Lewin, are you indicating that there was a license given by the city to this group? Yes, the, the city permitted them. The, 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 these plaintiffs in their complaint specify and lay out the fact that they complained to the city about these protesters. And the I city, understand, but we yeah. And the city. But the fact that there was a license given, if there was a license given, all the more reason license. why the city could There's be sued. No license. Because you don't need a license to stand up with a sign uh, in a public oh, okay. place. You don't need a okay. license. Okay. No city that requires you to have a license to hold a sign up that says that Israel is an apartheid state. No, no city oh. that that has to be done. Okay, but I still think that if there were not... Uh... Uh, very, very dramatic incursions on the right of, of, of exile. Again, I wasn't there, but if there wasn't dramatic incursions, it would be the, it would be the city of Ann Arbor's call. They would have to make the call. And as the referee in that situation, they were the ones that should be sued. That's the, I, I still feel that that would have been whether whether the, the, the whether they were a co a co defendant, maybe, maybe that uh, that should have solved the problem. I don't know. Probably yes. They weren't. I didn't know they were included in the suit, the city of Ann Arbor. But I think this, the city of Ann Arbor should have been assessed the attorney's fees, and of course they should have won the lawsuit, but not the group that protested. Anyway, I appreciate the interesting comment, another way of looking at it. And thank you for your phone call. We're, we're almost we're we're almost out of time. So uh, here's just an email question that Bracha Bracha writes. Um, excuse me. Abe from Manhattan. Let's take Abe from Manhattan. He has an email question. Don't you think the fact that these protests have been going on for 13 years to contribute uh, contributes to the decision by the courts? Yes, I I think it did. I think because I think uh, that the um, the members of the synagogue who were the constitutional lawyers who told them this is permissible were wrong. I think early on. A lawsuit should have been brought to push them further away. And the fact that it went on for 13 years certainly affected the court's judgment as to whether it should be enjoined in one way or another. Before I let you go, Rabbi Eli Krimsky, who I know he's the rabbi Legal Beach Synagogue. I know you know him from Washington, D.C. He asked me if you can tell the story about the judge who wore a yarmulke. <laughs> It's, I don't know whether you've got enough time for that, but the, the, that's Justice Brennan, William Brennan of the Supreme Court, who I knew personally. He was a very good supporter. And as a matter of fact, on this case that I mentioned that's coming up to the Supreme Court, he dissented from the decision that is now being uh, reconsidered by the court. He and Justice Marshall dissented, and he was, I think, a good friend 
of the Jewish people. And when he made his one trip to Israel, he called me and asked me to come over and talk to him about who he should visit and what courts he should see when he came to Israel. At that point, I had, um, um, I had litigated in the Supreme Court over the right to wear a yarmulke in the military. And the Supreme Court, uh, over Justice Brennan's dissent, said that you did not have a constitutional right to wear a yarmulke in the military together with your military uniform. So we worked together with the late Congressman Stephen Solars on a bill that said that the military had to give you the right to wear a yarmulke. And when the uh, bill was passed, Congressman Solars sent a thank you note to Justice Brennan, thanking him for his dissent. And in with the, uh, the note that Congressman Solars sent, he sent along a camouflage yarmulke, which we had distributed in order to help get the bill enacted. And uh, we had distributed it in the Senate. So when I came to visit with Justice Brennan before he went to Israel, Justice Brennan said to me, Nat, congratulations that you now got a law that allows or requires the military to allow the wearing of a yarmulke. And he says, Congressman Solars sent me a thank you note. And in with the thank you note, which my secretary brought to me, was a yarmulke. And I put the yarmulke on my head when I got the envelope and opened it up. And I forgot I was wearing the yarmulke. I sat there in my chambers for the rest of the day wearing the yarmulke. (laughs) Uh, First, I mean... The first justice to wear a yarmulke, of course, was a practicing Catholic. And and Justice Brennan said to me, when I got up to go home, I was still wearing the yarmulke. I walked out through my secretary's office and my law clerks tell me later that they saw me wearing a yarmulke and they wondered what I was doing. When I came home, he said, my wife said to me, Bill, what do you have on your head? And I felt up there, he said, and it was the yarmulke. It was very comfortable. So I told Justice Brennan, take it with you when you go to Israel. He did that. And when he uh, he was in Israel, he met with Ellie Rubenstein who was not yet a justice on the Israeli Supreme Court, but had had very important positions in the Israeli government. And when he met Rubenstein, Rubenstein, who had attended the argument on the Yamulka case when he was in Washington, said to Brennan, Justice Brennan, I'm so happy I'm in Israel because in Israel, I can wear my Yamulka everywhere because Rubenstein always walks around, of course, wearing a yarmulke, even in the White House. And he says when he said that, Brennan put his hand in his pocket, pulled out this funny-looking camouflage yarmulke, put it on his head, and he said, me too. (laughs) So that's the story of Justice Brennan who wore a yarmulke. Greg, you can't top that story. (laughs) Nat Lewin, one of the top attorneys in the United States who fights for Jewish civil rights, I hope that we're successful. And do you think the Supreme Court will, in the end, the end of the day, accept this case about the Ann Arbor Synagogue? If there are judges on the Sixth Circuit who disagree with Judge Sutton and Judge Clay and say, look, they should not have given this, even if they are in the minority and the case is not changed on a rehearing in bank, but somebody writes a strong dissent, then I think the Supreme Court may take this case. Doesn't sound very promising, though. 
Well, it's, it's a difficult, a difficult uphill fight. But a lot of the fights, frankly, that I and others who've been fighting for religious liberty have had in the past are difficult uphill fights, as is true of this case that's coming up in the Supreme Court that will affect Shomre Shabbos. Nadlon, I want to thank you for what you're doing for all of us, fighting for our rights, doing for so many years. Uh, you and your daughter are now in Lewin and Lewin. Thank you for being part of our show. Continue says regards to Ricky and the family. Thank you very much. They send regards back. The great Nat Lewin here on the Talkline Network. Be sure to share the podcast on your favorite social media channels. Hey, this is Alan Dershowitz um, inviting you to tune into the Dersh Show. The Dersh Show where we discuss the most important issues of the day. You know, the Dirt Show, all that's missing is the wits. And that's what I need you for, to provide the wits. We broadcast Monday through Thursday evenings at 11 p.m., courtesy of Rumble on WVIP 93.5 FM HD2, TalklineNetwork.com, and our 24-hour listening line at 641-793-0382. Please join us on The Dirt Show to really get a grasp of what's going on in our world today, and you'll hear it directly from me through my lens, which you know is always going to be your lens. So thank you. Did you know we're on Twitter, too? Connect with us there and get involved. Thank you for tuning in to Talk Line with Zev Brenner, America's premier Jewish broadcast, the pulse beat of the Jewish community. For continuous Jewish programs, TalklineNetwork.com or our 24-hour-a-day listen line at 641-741-0389. For past shows, you can find us on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, YouTube, Instagram, and all major podcast platforms or JewishPodcast.org. Thanks for listening to the TalklineNetwork.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks for joining us.